I could hardly put down the book entitled By the Sword, A History of Gladiators, Musketeers, Samurai, Swashbucklers, and Olympic Champions, a book by Richard Cohen, who is a, a master swordsman, uh, having competed in the Olympic Games uh, for Great Britain uh, on four different occasions as uh, the United Kingdom National Sabre Champion. Uh, he is uh, an author uh, uh, many times over, has written for the New York Times, the former uh, publishing director of Hutchinson and Hodder and Stoughton, the founder of Richard Cohen Books. This is a long, impressive, fascinating resume, and this is a very, very interesting book, again entitled By the Sword. And uh, its author, Richard Cohen, is uh, with us to, uh, to talk about it and uh, to talk about this fascinating topic. Richard Cohen, we welcome you to The Morning Show. It's nice to be with you. Uh, I would like to find out a little bit first, if I may, about your own career as a uh, as a uh, competitive uh, saber swordsman. Uh, first of all, how did you begin uh, that particular pursuit? Well, it happened when I went to my my main school, my high school. Um, I was thirteen at the time, and my school was run by Benedictine monks. And a monk came in and addressed all the new boys one day and told us about fencing and told us about its long history and brought in the Three Musketeers and Cyrano de Bergerac and Zorro and some of the other figures of romance that had been associated with the sword. And then when we went down to the school gym, he turned up dressed in his black habit from collar to, to toe, wielding a saber, as I soon learned to call it. And I was hooked. And he explained to us that the sword in its rich history had come down to saber, foil, and epée, the three different swords fenced now. And I took off from there and then got into school teams, I suppose, and went on through to, to fencing in the Olympics. Hmm. Superb. Uh, one of the questions I wanted to ask you is, um, what is the typical crossover when someone is an expert swordsman with other sorts of athletic endeavors? Uh, I mean, there are a lot of great football players that are also wrestlers, and there are a lot of good soccer players that are also great at running track. And I wonder what the crossover tends to be. It's an interesting question, and you get some people. I mean, for instance, the, the man who invented basketball, Jim Naismith, was also a keen fencing master and took up fencing almost by accident and then coached it for over 20 years very successfully. And you do get people who are very fine sportsmen um, in, in, in one or more sports, who then can take the sword play with equal success. But equally, you know, you get a lot of people who aren't good at any sport who become very good at fencing. And it may be because, as people say, it's the nearest you can get to physical chess. <laughs> and that you've got to anticipate um, your opponent. You've got to outwit them, as well as just being physically adept. Hmm. Um, and I've known champion fencers with only one hand, one had only one arm. I even fenced a very good young German fencer who was totally missing one leg and one arm. Wow. And had, um, obviously, false second arm and second leg. But he used to move up and down the fencing strip with real speed. And, was a, you know, he was a very t tough competitor simply because he had the fierce will to win. Hmm. One of my favorite quotes in this book is uh, when you quote a uh, historian, uh, Edg Edgerton Castle, 
who uh, characterizes uh, this as a superior kind of pastime, combining mental excitement and bodily exercise. And I love this. The excitement of a game of skill not entirely independent of chance. What do you well, think he's saying Edith there? Castle was this odd Brit who is a very good fencer. He captained the British side to the 1908 Olympics. But he was a, a writer and wrote on everything from having beautiful gardens to, with his wife, um, about a dozen um, bodice rippers, um, historical romances, which went on to become bestsellers. Um, but he was really one of a group of 19th century British enthusiasts who wrote about swordplay. And he wrote probably the best of all histories of that time. And he realized that, you know, for instance, you could be a wonderful fencer and get yourself challenged to a duel and feel that with your expertise you are bound to win. But once you came up against the fact that you could get badly wounded, maybe even die, a lot of championship fencers didn't prove to be very courageous on the dueling ground. One of the things that uh, you, you spell out for us in the prologue is that, uh, and you've already touched on it, that there are f three different kinds of weapons involved in this. First, though, take us through that very basic term of fencing. What exactly do we mean when we talk about fencing? Well, fencing comes from an old English word, fence. You know, to defend yourself, and really at the center of fencing, is to make sure you don't get hit. Though, of course, one of the best ways of making sure of that is to take the offense and uh, lunge at your opponent. But um, the sword went through you know, hundreds of years of changes from the really heavy um, sword weighing four pounds or so, where you were really just using brute strength as much as skill, to the weapons today, which you can use with lightning speed and which are very light. You can, you know, it's almost like a conductor with a baton. And, of course, in the early days, making swords was a real art. And they began with uh, swords of pretty poor quality. In fact, the Romans recorded that they would often be fighting one of the old tribesmen up in Gaul or in Britain. And their opponent would rush away, and they learned later would go behind a, a, a rock to straighten out their sword, because the, the poor quality of the metal <laughs> meant that it... it almost bent double in battle. Wow. Explain to us, if you would, the distinction between foil, epe, and saber. Well, I don't want to get too complicated, so I'll give you shortened stories. The foil was really an invention of the French, which they um, came up with in the courts of Louis the Fourteenth and Fifteenth, when they became rather bored with um, the old swords, which they couldn't really practice with in a useful way. So they invented this light sword, um, which allowed you to use great skill in moving it around, and also complicated rules. And for instance, they said that you couldn't hit on the legs or the arms or the head, just the body where the, the vital organs lay. And that became, now I suppose you'd call it, the weapon that most people, if they're going to be learning to fence from a sporting point of view, and that's the first weapon they, they are likely to be taught. The saber comes from the cavalry saber, came in um, through the um, Turks, the Ottoman Empire, through Hungary and Poland. And there you can not only use the point, but you can slash with it. And the target there is anywhere above the hips. 
Um, and the epee was, again, something which developed over the years, but that's heavier and um, is the most obvious dueling weapon. And there, you can hit with the point anywhere on the body. And in, in competitive fencing now, as long as you hit your opponent a 32nd of a second before they hit you, then the electrical apparatus will give you the hit. But that's got a kind of rivulet in it, which now carries an electric thread to help for scoring. But in the old days, people used to say it allowed blood to run down the blade. Wow. One of the things that you, you talk about also in the prologue is you, you, you tell us that in, in both the foil and the saber, there is something known as uh, the right of way in which uh, a fencer, uh, if, it's, if he starts an offensive movement, has either to miss or be parried before his opponent could uh, make a legitimate reply. You liken it to phrasing in music. Well, um, that's probably as near as one can get. It seems a rather peculiar rule. I mean, it's not as if tennis players want to hit the ball at each other at the same time. But you've got to remember that they were trying to create a sport, and they, although they had um, little balls on the tips of their foils, they can still cause a lot of accidents. So this right of way, that one person had to complete a move before his opponent had the chance to hit him in return, really came about, as much as anything, from the fact that it was a good 150 years that they were fencing these weapons when, before masks came in. And if you look at any old um, portrait of a fencer, they're normally always held, uh, portrayed with their head held back because you could very easily get hit in the face or in the eye and in those days, it was said that if you were a fencing master, it was an odd fencing master who ended his career with both eyes intact. <laughs> so it really was, as much as anything, a reflection of making it safer and also to, as I say, take the, mu the music analogy, that you would fence to a rhythm. Yeah. And it was a thing of grace and meant to be a thing of beauty. And in fact, in the old scoring system, you used to get marks, not just for hitting your opponent, for doing so with style and if you defended with grace and um, obvious technical ability you'd get marks even for being a good defender hmm. and you, you say at one point that you could sometimes call this a conversation of the blades what a beautiful way to put it well if you watch top fencing although you know you can have opponents who are longing to hit each other they do if they're particularly if they're high standard and of equal high standard seem to be having a conversation as if um, something which is simulating, I suppose fencing simulates trying to kill another person more closely than any other sport I can think of. At the same time, it can be a peculiar kind of partnership. And I remember watching um, a Russian and an Italian, both of whom in their turn had been world champion at Sabre. And they went all the way down one end of the strip, just like a film, clash of blades, clash of blades, then all the way back to the other end of the fencing strip and back it down. Three times they went up and down this 25-meter um, strip, and they didn't land, neither of them, a single hit. And the audience just got up and gave them a standing ovation. <laughs> and they were so much in their own world that they didn't realize that they'd put on a really wonderful display. But it was as if they'd created, you know, this conversation between the two of them. Right. You do tell us that there is such a strange uh, uh, juxtaposition of, of, of ideals um, 
within within the world of the sword. You you say at one point that this is, and I think you just said it again that. Uh, of all sports, this is perhaps the most romantic, but it also most closely simulates the act of armed manslaughter. Uh, and at another point in uh, in uh, the chapter entitled How It All Began, you say there are two basic aspects of swordsmanship, ferocity and chivalry. And apparently it's been so almost from the beginning. Well, you know, why do we shake hands? It's to show that our hand isn't going for our, the weapon by our side. Um, fencing, because it came from warfare, because it came from trying to kill another person, has always had a code attached to it. And when men started dueling, and dueling became this craze throughout Europe, into Asia, indeed into North America, in order that there was some semblance of order to it, a whole range of rules were attached to fencing, and much more so than in any other sport. And in order to get people to follow these rules, a, a code of ethics was introduced. Now, of course, you could have this code of ethics. You could arrive at you know, the chosen place for a duel, and your opponent would come up to you, and if you weren't careful, would take sand or dirt from his pocket, throw it in your face, and draw his sword and have it to you. Um, so you had to be pretty careful, and seconds were brought in. Uh, I think introduced in Italy, first of all, but soon coming into the rest of Europe. And that was to see fair play. Um, but as often as not, you'd have seconds fighting amongst themselves. And you could have things which were meant to be honorable duels becoming 20 against 20 um, skirmishes. Um, but this was, it really was a rage. Some people called it an epidemic. And there was one uh, British ambassador in France um, at uh, the beginning of the 18th century, he wrote his memoirs. He said, I don't think I've met a single man in Paris during my time of duty here who hasn't fought a duel. And he went on to say that if you hadn't fought a duel and you fell in love with a woman and asked her father, as you then had to do, for her hand in marriage, the father would think that you were a sissy, not properly a man, and would turn you down. If you had not fought a duel? Yeah. Wow. We're talking with Richard Cohen. He is the author of a fascinating book called By the Sword, a history of gladiators, musketeers, samurai, swashbucklers, and Olympic champions, published by uh, Random House. Uh, Mr. Cohen, in this chapter entitled How It All Began, uh, well, you, you take us certainly right to the very beginning and maybe somewhere between 1500 and 1100 B.C. that uh, it is believed maybe that the first swords appeared. One of the things you discuss at, at greater length is the difference between the Greeks and the Romans in terms of their interest in the sword and fencing. Explain the difference. Well, the sword has triumphed over the years to become the weapon of steel, which has lasted through the centuries. But, of course, it had to do uh, battle against the supremacy any number of other arms, on things like the mace, the spear, and many others. Now, the Greeks regarded uh, hand fighting, they regarded the spear as being the first arm of attack. And the sword, they didn't really bother training people with. They reckoned that if you got so close you could use a sword, you could hardly miss. And so people weren't taught, really, um, any great elements of sword play. The, the Romans had a very different feeling. They saw the sword as important, and they reckoned that if you trained for it, you'd be the, the better fighter. And, of course, um, this was particularly true, not just in terms of their army training, but even more so 
um, when the gladiatorial contest got going. And Julius Caesar was a particular lover of these contests. And he helped set up training schools throughout the length and breadth of Italy. And at these training schools, men were taught how to fight with swords. And they became so well-trained that, in fact, the army officers, without a touch of, well, anger as well as envy, finally adopted the same training methods um, so that the um, army swordsmen were as well-practiced as the gladiators. And swordplay then became watched by people in their hundreds, and not just in the arena. Um, men and women used to go to the training schools and watch people going through their practice routines. So the Romans, I wouldn't say, were the first people um, to start practice at swordplay, but they were the first empire builders to see that being good at a sword took practice. Mm -hmm. Something else you outlined for us in this uh, same chapter is the rise, particularly in England, of, of tournaments that involved uh, sword play. And one particular uh, evolution that you, that you highlight, which uh, I, I had, had never occurred to me, certainly, was that how these evolved from, from uh, exercises that really uh, resembled authentic warfare uh, to something that would be more like a kind of a harmless entertainment pageant. Ex explain a little further that development and, and maybe uh, why it occurred. Well, a lot of our ideas about medieval tournaments, I think, come from films. Uh, they were very rough-and-ready affairs. You would get them um, without much order in, in their early years. You would get groups of men, normally noblemen, on horseback in a great melee, uh, spurring their horses on. And it would be like a crowded cocktail party, only this time it would be a cocktail party where you could be killed and if you were killed, the person who succeeded in killing you would have the right to your domains, your horse, even your body. And as such, the church uh, soon came down on tournaments hard. They condemned dueling. They condemned anywhere where these sporting occasions, which could result in hundreds lying dead at the end of the day, and others, the best survivors, going off, often rich men as a result, well, the church wasn't going to have any of that, um, even though they had a rather two-faced attitude. And once the duel became so much part of everyday life, uh, the church would often name its own champions or get involved in a share of the profits. But uh, pope after pope uh, put out edicts saying that this was an evil thing and should stop. And partly as a result of that, tournaments became more civilized, more like pageants and the point of the lance became rebated. In other words, it didn't have a deadly sharp tip on it, and other rules were introduced. So the thing became more ordered, a little less dangerous, and also just better for people to, to watch as a spectacle. Hmm. And from that developed the duel. Now, it's not to say that the duel only came from the tournament, but certainly the idea of a one-on-one -on -one battle, the duel of chivalry, um, looks to the tournament at, at, at its starting point. And from the duel of chivalry, you develop into the duel of honor, where a man would challenge another, and it could be for any number of reasons. Hmm. Um, One of the things you say about the duel, 
Uh, first of all, it comes in a chapter called A Wild Kind of Justice. I, I love that uh, turn of phrase. One of the things you say about the duel is that it was essentially an artificially staged uh, encounter, deliberately confined by formal restrictions and such, the pr- truest precursor of fencing. How did all of that come about? Well, as I say, a lot of it was um, a safety aspect. It was trying to create order on what was fundamentally a challenge possibly to the death. And during the uh, 17th century, century, you've got the most amazing statistics. In France, for instance, um, during that century, it was reckoned that 4,000 people would die in France a year um, from duels. And that's just reported duels. Of course, a lot of duels weren't even known about. They happened... Um, secretly. Um, so the the mortality rate of duels was very high. Well, were these restrictions somehow to combat that? To well, they were to combat that, um, as I say, to, 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 put, to put order on what was a deadly pursuit. And I think also one's got to remember that for really until um, the mid-19th century, it was reckoned that the duel was mainly um, the prerogative of the upper and upper middle class. That, for instance, um, you couldn't even take part in a tournament in much of Europe unless you could show that you were descended from the nobility. That was one of your kind of entrance cards, so to speak. So um, in order to, I suppose, give dueling a good name, people decided that they'd have a code of dueling, um, the code duelo, um, just to show that they weren't barbarians. This wasn't murder by another name. And it was an attempt to stop the lawmakers outlawing dueling completely um, by showing that this was an honorable act. Um, It was to do with men defending their honor, and that there was a higher aim to it all than simply trying to butcher an enemy. One thing I had absolutely no knowledge of at all before uh, reading your book was uh, the idea that that for many years, duels were often fought as what you call trial by battle. And sometimes uh, uh, to to decide actually sort of academic matters or academic questions. Uh, Explain how duels sometimes were carried out for this rather odd Um, reason. Academic matters. There's one famous case of an Italian who fought, I think it was, 20 duels on the basis that he thought that Dante was a greater poet than another Italian poet. And then it turned out at the end of it, he'd read neither man at all, just like dueling. Hmm. How about the champion for hire, which uh, emerges in this well, era? I'll, I'll say a bit more. Um, you, you mentioned the judicial duel. Um, this was really brought in because um, there had been the trial by ordeal, by which if a man was accused of a particular crime, or a woman indeed, um, they had either to hold a red-hot piece of metal in their hands or blindfolded had to step over a series of red-hot um, pieces of metal on the ground. And rulers and magistrates realized that this was very often uh, solved by trickery, that the clergy, who were often given the job of performing the trial by ordeal, was simply coat pieces of metal um, a fiery color. And so 
when people held them or stepped over them, there was no danger at all. And so as to make it fairer, um, the lawmakers said, right, if somebody is accused of a particular crime, they can choose to show their, their innocence by fighting. And they had elaborate rules by which a person could do this. And they said, it's almost like kind of saying to God, if, you, if you've got any power, then you'll let the, the innocent man win, which was, of course, in the end, shown to be um, as much a, a, a battle by chance as anything else. But if you were put in this position and you had um, a, a just a judicial duel, then you were allowed to name a person to fight for you. And so there grew up people who would offer their services, known as freelancers, from which we take out our phrase, a freelancer, and they would be warriors for hire. And um, they didn't just fight judicial duels. They'd also put on fights in the marketplace, or basically um, they would be mercenaries for hire in any way you wanted to use them. But um, as for the church on this, while they condemned dueling, um, a top bishop would often have one of these top freelancers on his staff in case he ever got challenged to a duel that he didn't intend to lose. Wow. In Chapter 2 of the book, uh, called Enter the Master, you kind of explain how uh, swordsmanship evolved from a, a time when you said it was based on basically a hodgepodge of techniques that were kind of passed on in, 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 in a rather haphazard fashion to a much more systemized uh, means by which uh, clear, clean uh, technique was, was taught uh, by fencing masters? Well, one of the things that happened when um, tournaments became more organized, you got a lot of warriors who, looking for employment at a time when there might not be a war on at any particular time, and they took to teaching fencing. And then um, you then get, with the invention of the printing press and Caxton at the end of the 15th century, at last the means of spreading your mastery of fencing, your various moves. And so for the first time, from really, I suppose, the 1540s, 1550s particularly, you get a number of masters, in this case, mainly Italian, though there's some top German ones as well, rather than just writing their thoughts on how fencing should be done and a few scrolls being passed from hand to hand, they can actually have printed their views. And the first books on fencing, because this was, you know, a way of how you can save your life, became our equivalent of bestsellers. And even if Italian couldn't be read by various courts, these books would often have illustrations of the various moves that they were advising. And these would be eagerly lapped up by people throughout Europe. And this led to um, the formalizing of various fencing moves. And so what was a one-to-one -one battle slowly became, slowly developed into a sport. Into that physical... And a particular code of doing things. In that, in that physical sort of chess match that you were uh, likening it to uh, earlier in the interview. There's uh, a marvelous person called Agrippa, who is an Italian engineer, um, who had, people say, his friend Michelangelo, who's a keen fencer, and they used to, to fence with each other. But being an engineer, Agrippa uh, didn't have
have any preconceived notions. He um, actually he started introducing various moves in fencing by watching gamecocks and the actions of their heads as they moved. Wow. And from that perception, he wrote up one of the most popular and influential fencing books of all. As as the uh, as the development uh, of of fencing uh, evolves uh, into the so-called age of the musketeers in, in in France, one interesting development in technique it comes from the separation of attack from defense. Could you explain uh, why that was important and significant? Well, it seems strange to us now um, why people haven't thought of moves um, before they actually became invented. But it was a gripper who, for instance, said, look, here we are, we have our back foot in front of us and our sword arm behind us. This is crazy. We ought to have our sword arm threatening our opponent. And he was the first writer of any consequence to say, basically, reverse your feet. Um, but in those days, he still hadn't thought out any change to the fact that you'd have your main sword in your lead arm and your back arm in defense would hold a dagger or a small shield or maybe a cloak and you would basically have one arm for defense the other for attack and it wasn't until a good two decades after that um, new instructors said you don't need your back arm to carry anything your front arm can not only act as defense you can parry with your front arm blade but if you do that the blade you've got is far closer to your opponent for you to reply, and you can make what's called a repost um, far more quickly. And so the whole notion of having um, a body of technique came to be popular, and people could see that um, you know, one arm in that sense was better than two, that footwork and distance and timing could be employed in a very sophisticated way. And the whole body of skills that we have now used um, came to be spread throughout Europe. Hmm. Uh, as we uh, continue into the uh, book, you take us into the era uh, in which uh, it becomes a more gentlemanly pursuit and, of course, becomes an organized sport, which uh, eventually takes an honored place on the uh, Olympic stage. Um, and, and, of course, that is something which you know something about as a four-time Olympian in this, uh, uh, in this particular sport. But what I wanted to take our closing minutes uh, uh, to devote ourselves to is the chapter in which you talk about how swords are made. And I want you to explain to our listeners why this is of personal interest to you. Well, my father um, had never really been a fencer. He was, of all things, a heavyweight boxer. But his family business was mating, making metals and has been, uh, business is over 200 years old. So I've always had an interest. I remember going to the family foundry and watching men working in metals and seeing how dangerous it was and how wonderfully skilled. And I went one night where a lot of the work is done and was asking the foreman of the works. He said, well, you can see much better, despite all modern developments, you can see... Um, the temperature of the metal, the temperature of the furnace, far better at night. And that goes right back to the earliest makers of swords, when steel blades were being made um, at night. 
And this led to all kinds of superstitions growing up, that you know, the best swords uh, could be made by plunging a new blade through the stomach of a nearby slave, a young and virile young slave, which would somehow impart um, his strength into the blade itself, or um, that uh, you needed um, a goat's urine on the blade to make it um, hard yet flexible, mm. as are the best blades. But on top of that, you had the sense, particularly through this nighttime um, tradition, that sword-making was attached to some kind of magic. And so the fact that you know, some of the best-known swords have come down to us, like King Arthur's blade, Excalibur, is not just a wonderful weapon. It's got magical properties attached to it, too. Well, and you talk in Chapter 7 when you explore the, the especially fascinating world of the samurai warrior uh, from Japan, the fact that sword fighting there has been, uh, in, in a very uh, special sort of way, a, a spiritual endeavor, and that the sword itself took on kind of a mystical quality. Well, it came in the samurai belief and in much of Japanese religious belief generally to take on a religious significance. It became not just a reflection of the soul, but your own self. And so that would be why a sword would be handed down through the generations as an object of veneration, despite it being, you know, above all, a killing object. And, you know, if you were involved in the sword-making process in Japan, there were a huge number of rules and regulations. You couldn't have any sexual relationships for the three days before you started to make a sword blade or during the process itself. Uh, the actual process is more complicated and took far longer than any other sword-making process in the world. And as a result, Japanese blades, Japanese swords, are said to be the finest that have ever been made. Hmm. But it, it all came from um, a centuries-old tradition in Japan about the importance of the sword in this religious sense. Uh, another bit of mystery and, and magic that surrounds some of this is what you call uh, the bota segreta, the, uh, that sort of secret special uh, gesture, the perfect thrust. Explain how this came about and, and why well, it became such a, a timeless sort of quest. Um, the search for the perfect parry, or even more, the perfect thrust, so that you would win any fight that you got yourself involved in stretches through the centuries. And obviously, in the days before the dissemination of books about fencing, how else do you learn how to defeat your opponent? And the Italians were very much the leading nation in this. And people throughout Europe, if they were either challenged to a duel or expected to be challenged, would make the trip to Italy and try to seek out one of these masters of the sword who was said to have a perfect move that would bring them victory. Well, of course, a number of these people were total charlatans, but uh, the people who went to them for advice, uh, if they were taught a false trick or something that didn't work, were hardly likely to come back and complain. They didn't make any travels after they'd been badly wounded or died. Um, but most masters, not least because it's a good commercial line, would say that they had a particular trick that, that only they could teach, and they made it a rule that anyone who came to them and often paid a good deal of money to be taught it, the one rule was that they weren't allowed to use it against their master. Hmm. 
the book is called By the Sword. You, you say in the, uh, I don't remember if it's the preface or, or the prologue, I guess you call it, of, of, of the book, that this is not a complete history. And, let, and yet, it's, this is a massive book, and you obviously give us a whole, a whole range of, of information of all kinds of different facets of, of, uh, of sword fighting. And yet, I guess what you're saying is that this is such a vast area of, of study and discussion that uh, one single book can't possibly contain uh, all of its history and complexity. Well, I wanted it to be as readable as possible. And you'll see that it, it, it's full of the most amazing stories. I mean, many of which have never been put down uh, on paper before. They tell stories, oral stories, which I picked up from countries around the world. Um, and there are, there are whole sections which we've not had time to go into, how the Nazis uh, and the Italian fascists took to fencing in a horrible but fascinating way, the tradition of student duels in Germany and Austria, where you try to get a scar across your face. And then some of the great characters uh, in Japanese, in American, in, in I've discovered seven American presidents fenced over the years. Wow. Um, but there are so many stories that I couldn't include them all. And I just wanted to make sure that people realized that one looks at swordplay and it becomes almost an alternative history of the West. Richard Cohen, the author of By the Sword, A History of Gladiators, Musketeers, Samurai, Swashbucklers, and Olympic Champions, uh, published by Random House, and an utterly fascinating book. My uh, compliments to you for writing it, and my thanks to you for joining us today on The Morning Show to talk about it. Well, thank you.